What a beautiful weekend, right? Did anyone else get out in their gardens this weekend or yards? Yes, yes, I did too. Corey and I spent a lot of our Friday weeding, which is my least favorite thing to do in the garden, but she did the planting. So I weed, she plants, it's all a good deal. Um, I don't mind weeding so much because it makes me feel like I've accomplished something when I do it. I like the, the idea of cleaning and making the spaces feel wholesome. I love in my, um, we have this huge strawberry patch at our yard and it feels like the weeds are just choking them out, so I, you know, I pull it out. What I hate about weeding is that they just keep coming back, right? Like they just keep coming back. And on sunny days, I can imagine our garden thriving in the summertime, and it makes weeding, to me, it makes it feel purposeful. But when it's dark and rainy, and I see the weeds multiplying like orcs and Mordor coming to choke out the life of my garden, it just feels, it feels hopeless. And I actually have these thoughts sometimes, especially in this long May that's been so dark and rainy, like, I wonder if I could just let them go for a year. And, and I'll just call it like bee habitat like people do that don't mow their lawns. So like, if there's some of you out there, good, good for you. You're good for the bees. But I always just feel that's a bit of a cop out. And so like, sometimes I just wonder if I just give in to the weeds and let them take over. Life actually can feel a little bit like that. Um, uh, human beings, I mean, this is like not news to you, but I'll just say it. It's a fact. Like human beings thrive I mean, across cultures, it's not just American culture, but like human beings thrive when we feel like we have purpose, when it feels like our lives matter for something. And conversely, there's just like so many studies out there that show when you lose your sense of purpose or meaningful contribution to the community, even if you're physically healthy, It's easier to fall into depression and despair. People are more susceptible even to physical diseases when we feel like we don't have purpose in life. It's the opposite of flourishing. And during the pandemic, and I realize when I say that, like, it makes it sound like it's over or something, but you know what I mean. Like, it's, it's a little bit better than it was. Uh, especially, like, and during those days of lockdown and not getting together with people, um, I know that some of you had your jobs dry up, uh, businesses shut down. Others of you, littler people or, or, or teenagers, had your school suddenly stop and then go online, and it was a mess, and it was crazy, and all this figuring stuff out. And every one of us, had parts of our lives changed that we didn't ask for. And you know, just like in common parlance, like we don't sometimes take seriously enough how disruptive that is in our lives. That's trauma. That's trauma. A lot of times we just think trauma is when we're physically abused or more physically injured or a car accident or something horrible. But that was trauma for all of us. And for many, it's been a season of questioning, what is my place in the world? What is my place in community? What is my relationship with God? What is my relationship to the church, to anything? A couple of weeks ago, we began an exploration of the book of Philippians. And Philippians is situated in the Bible in this place called the Epistles, literally letters, and Philippians is actually a letter from a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, to a church in Philippi. And Philippi, I mean, we know where it is. It's in modern-day Greece, and in the first century AD, it was in a Roman province called Macedonia. And in many ways, having walked through a world-altering pandemic and still feeling the effects, like we're still, if, if you're delusional, maybe you feel like you're not feeling the effects, 
you're feeling the effects. Um, ask your spouse or your good friend or <laughs> people you work with. Um, you're still feeling the effects of unwanted intrusion on our lives. I think we can relate to Paul and what he is going through in the book of Philippians. See, following Jesus for Paul didn't get him much in terms of power or in terms of prestige or wealth or position in society. He certainly was not living the American dream. But what he did have in his life was purpose. He lived to know Jesus and to share that relationship with Jesus and the message about Jesus with everyone that would listen to him. That was his purpose. And part of his purpose was traveling and teaching and raising up leaders in these different communities and then raising up other leaders. And here's where I think we can relate. The whole occasion for Paul's letter is that he had his purpose in life seriously questioned. He was arrested by the Roman Empire for doing what Jesus called him to do. And for a traveling apostle to be grounded in a prison cell must have been extremely discouraging. For all that he had given up to follow Jesus, only to be prevented the freedom from doing what Jesus called him to do, well, it must have been discouraging for the Philippians as well, because the Philippians were his partners in ministry. Their purpose is wrapped up in his purpose. Now, how are we supposed to respond when our purpose in life is shaken to its core? Paul writes his letter to the Philippians to encourage them as they struggle with those same questions. So let's listen and see what maybe we can learn from what Paul has to say. If you're able, would you stand? Uh, it'll help you stay awake. And, um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll read this section of Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 B through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, in my life whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which is better, which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that's very much better, and yet to remain on in the flesh in a bodily life, uh, which is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Lord, would you open up this word and one of Paul's famous run-on sentences, <laughs> I pray more than just a cognitive understanding, but Spirit of God, would you open our hearts to receive what Paul has for us, what you have for us in this text. Amen. You may be seated. Oh man, a text like that just raises all kinds of questions for me as an inquisitive person, uh, all kinds of theological questions and historical questions, um, but this is a sermon 
and so I have to choose what to talk about. I have 60 pages of double-spaced notes on Philippians 1, still adding to it each week as I study more and more, um, but I, it's a week ago rabbit trails, um, maybe in some conversations after this or other things, other settings, but for a sermon, what I'm gonna try and do is take those 60 pages and make something that actually matters to you and for your life, okay? So what I'm gonna try and do is draw out three implications Three realities from this text. Um, after all, this letter from Paul to the Philippians is written with the purpose of encouraging the church. And so let's be encouraged together by what Paul has to say. Okay, so three implications, three important things I think that Paul is, is giving us here to help us get through a season in life when our purpose is shaken. I think the first one is, is prayer. Well, let me unpack that a little bit. Paul begins his letter like this. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that my speaking with all boldness, Christ, will be exalted now as always in my body, whether in my life or in my death. So if you forgot what has happened in the last couple weeks of this story, because I've been taking chunks at a time, let me just remind you that last week we talked about the first 18 verses of chapter one, and there we learned that Paul is in prison. He's either in Rome or he's in Ephesus. It's divided scholarship. He's in one of those two places, all right? Now, while he never planned on being in prison, he actually found that he could rejoice, like, like, like legitimately rejoice, not because he's in prison, but because despite him being in prison, not being able to go out and tell people about the gospel, it just so happens he has a captive audience that happens to be open to the gospel. And uniquely, it's this praetorian guard of these high-ranking Roman officials who would then like go rub shoulders with other high-ranking Roman officials. So it was pretty cool that God turned this horrible situation into something fruitful. And here he is in our passage tonight, still rejoicing and encouraging the church to pray for him. He's got confidence that the prayers of the church, his partners in the gospel, will be sufficient for him and will help him to stand faithful in the work of spreading the good news of Jesus, even in terrifying circumstances. Now, just a few moments ago, Josh came up with beautiful Abby and read uh, our scripture reading for the day out of the book of Acts. That story of Peter being, well, first of all, James is killed by someone in power, and then Peter, the apostle, is arrested, right? And this happens before our story. And Peter's in prison. And in those days, same with Paul's situation, we gotta, we gotta change our minds a little bit, because like in our day, if you get arrested for doing something wrong and you go to prison, oftentimes prison is your punishment. Like you get 10 years, you get 20 years, and it, you know, that's your punishment. But in the ancient world, in the Roman world, prison wasn't your punishment. Prison was a waiting time for you to either get released or fined or sent to the mines or executed, right? Now, unfortunately, there's no, like, laws. Well, there were laws, but depending on who you were, 
people enforce those laws differently, and you could be in prison a very long time, just kind of waiting, but you're always waiting for some outcome that you didn't have control over. So in this story, in Acts, Peter had been in prison for days, and the text says that on the very night when Herod was to bring Peter before him, that, that translation here is that Herod was going to kill Peter. He's going to have him executed. And it's in the height of that tension that God intervenes, and he sends this angel who somehow breaks Peter out and while he's chained between these two Roman guards. In the ancient world, like uh, in these Roman prisons, you would have two Roman guards. They're on three-hour shifts um, so that they would never fall asleep, and you've got the prisoner chained between two, two dudes. So that, like, it's very locked down. The point is, like, this is a miracle that this angel comes in stealth, like ninja style. I don't know how he does it, like Delta Force, and, like, gets the chains fall off. And I don't know why he didn't have his clothes on, but he's like, get your clothes on, your sandals on. I'm not asking those questions, but, like, so he gets Peter out of jail, and Peter's down the street and out the gate before he even realizes, before he thinks it's a dream. And he makes his way to Mary's house, who is the mother of John Mark, who is later going to become this traveling companion of Barnabas and probably wrote the Gospel of Mark because he's close with Peter. Anyway, Mary's house was one of these meeting places for the early church in Jerusalem. And so Peter knocks on the door while the church is praying for him. While like, Lord, release Peter from prison. He's our dude. He's our main guy. He's one of Jesus' apostles, you know. And, and so he's knocking on the door, and the servant girl comes. Her name's Rhoda, uh, which is Greek for rose or flower. And fun fact, our state flower named Rhododendron comes from Rhoda. Okay. Um, Rhoda hears Peter's voice, but in her joy and amazement, she leaves him outside the door. So she's like, oh, it's him. Go get the apostles. Um, they don't believe it's him. They think it's like his ghost or an angel or something like that. It's the stuff of comedy. So Peter, the great apostle, has been busted out of prison by God who has heard the prayers of the church praying for Peter. The church finds out, but they don't really believe it could be him. Like, they're praying for Peter's release. Peter's at the front door, and they're like, nah, probably not. God doesn't really answer our prayers. The text says that they thought it might be his angel or a spirit or something like that. In other words, they thought Peter was probably dead already or as good as dead already. And so here's the news about, the good news about prayer. And bless Luke, by the way, for telling us that story in the gospel or in the book of Acts because Peter, the great apostle, does not believe in the angel when he's first broken out of prison. The church, the early church, the first generation of people that knew Jesus the closest were gathered and praying, doing all the right religious things, and they don't believe that God actually answered their prayer. And then in the middle of this, a servant girl with a Greek name, likely a foreign slave and a, and a, or a house servant, she's the only one with eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of God working among them. Now, if I or you or an ancient person were inventing a story to tell other people about your religion, this Christian movement, you would not throw shade on one of your key leaders like Peter like that. But this has all the marks of authenticity, and I love it because it tells me this, that God can and often does work through me anyway. Anyway, dot, 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 all the ways that I fail, all the ways that my faith is weak. God does and often will work through you anyway. Despite all of your lack of faith 
and all of your failings. He works through our prayers even when it feels like we're going through the motions. He works through his church even when his church is afraid or lacks faith or has lost hope because the definition of who this Yahweh is, this God, is he's faithful. I've said it so many times before, I'll quote Dale Bruner again, don't put faith in your faith. I love that phrase. So much of my church experience in other places has been, you've got to have strong faith. You've got to work yourself up to this faith. Don't put faith in your faith. The strength of your faith is not the litmus test for whether or not Jesus loves you. The quality of your faith in any given moment, because we all know faith is like this in our lives The quality of your faith in any given moment is not the prerequisite for God to be faithful to you, right? One of the mysteries of the universe is that the living God has given the power of influence to all people. Whatever your place in the world, every single human being has access to God through prayer, access to his person, access to relationship with him, and by, by fiat, access to his power, because when God listens and does stuff, it's powerful. You know, in the world that we live in, that we inhabit, that we do out here, only the well-connected and the powerful and the influential have access to world leaders, have access to the corporate decision-makers of the world, Men and women, adults and children in much of the world, the dominant ethnic group over minority ethnic groups. So it's, it's usually men have more power than women in our world. Adults have more power than children. Minorities have less power than majority. And, and you go across to different countries and cultures and you'll see that. And if you want to go far in the world by the world's rules it's gonna get ugly out there. You have to be willing to get ugly. But that's not the way with God. With God, the sovereign of the universe, power is democratized through prayer. Power of God is democratized through prayer. Anyone can pray. Anyone can have equal access to the attention of God. You might believe the lie that because I'm a pastor, that I have some kind of, like people on my street say that all the time, like, hey, I'm going on vacation next week. I know you've got the big guy's ear. Can you pray for a little, you know, people, people say that all the time. And I know no church people would think that, but stop thinking that. Like, I'm no closer to God than anybody else. And neither is the priest down the street or the most spiritual holy author of the last book you just read. No, everyone has equal power and act, or equal access to the living God. And that's the way he's designed the world. I think prayer's weird. I think it's weird that, but I think the reason that there's prayer as part of God's system is because you can't be, you can't have like closer access. Like everyone has equal access. And I think that's the most beautiful thing that God would, would choose to relate to people like that. No matter your education, no matter your location on the planet, your sex, your income level, your ethnicity, your age, everyone has equal access to God. In fact, the Christian author, um, spiritual author Richard Foster in his book about prayer, 
He tips his hat that children, actually, their prayers for healing, for example, are more effective. So kids out there, keep praying. You're better. Maybe, maybe some people are closer to God. Maybe it's kids. So Paul has no confidence in the, that the Roman Empire is going to do the right thing while he's in prison, but he does have confidence that the prayers of the Philippian church are going to be heard by God and that God, through his spirit, will strengthen Paul, will strengthen Paul to be able to see through whatever his destiny is. He doesn't say he has confidence that God is certainly going to do this outcome that I want. He has confidence that the prayers of the people will be effective to help strengthen Paul so that he, no matter what he faces, will be faithful to God. When you feel, when you feel powerless in the face of despair or overwhelming currents in the world, Paul's encouragement is to seek God through prayer. You may not know this, but our leadership team, our leadership team, Ryan Wasserman and Nancy Taylor and Corey Hager and Tommy Lingbloom and Kim Benjen and Allison Leckie, they pray for you by name at least once a month. I just thought you should know that. Like, it's a good reminder that they pray for you by name. Even if you're a visitor, if we know your name, you're on a piece of paper. Sorry, it's not weird. I hope not. But like, we pray for you. Um, because we think that God cares about everybody. And the dual encouragement here is to pray for others and also to seek prayer on your own behalf. Even when your faith is weak, God is faithful to hear our faintest cry. Okay, so that's, don't worry, that was my biggest point. You're like, this is gonna be a long one. No, trust me. Okay, the second encouragement is uh, that we see in Paul is that he has confidence He has confidence in the promise of resurrection. I mean, that's just, that's just such a a central piece of him. Uh, The passage begins with, yes, I will continue to rejoice. Now, on the surface, it sounds like one of those annoying people who are obviously, you know, obliviously bubbly about, like, the world could be falling apart, and they're just like, oh, no, it's just a flesh wound. All my limbs are chopped off, right? It's like, I, we all know those people. Sorry, I'm a little cynical Gen Xer. I, 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 yeah, sorry. The world isn't just all good. You can't just be bubbly all the time. Like, some things are really hard out there. Paul is not that guy. He's not like, oh, I'm in prison, but rejoice in the Lord. He's, he's not happy that he's in prison. He honestly doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Like, he really could die. In fact, we see Paul face possible execution in his second letter to the Corinthian church when he writes, he writes this, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed, we despaired of life itself. That's not a bubbly, flesh-woundy kind of guy. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, so that we should rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again and also join in helping us by your prayers. It's a different letter. Most of us in the Western modern world that we live in. Most of us live with the illusion that we probably will know the time 
and manner of our death. There's always going to be freak accidents. I, I know there's always an exception to the rule. But most of us have the financial means and access to health care to the point that even if we get a horrible disease, doctors usually will give us percentages. You've got this percentage or that. Per- uh, doctors can usually say, like, here's your window. You've got three months. You've got, you know, there, there's just so much information that, that so many people I know... Y- y- we love this, I, this fallacy that we have the knowledge of, of how it's all going to play out. But you know, in the Roman world, life was, as Thomas Hobbes wrote, nasty, brutish, and short. Sometimes medical care in the Roman world would actually make you worse. And, and like, if you, I'm just thinking like my three kids and like how they get injured and how I get injured because I'm a buffoon. But like, it, like, if you broke a bone in the ancient Roman world, like, there's very little chance it's going to get set right. Like so many people had disfigurement and scarring and limbs missing. In fact, in a lot of ancient, like, you know how like we sign contracts when we buy property or whatever, or we'll sign our signature and we'll have a notary. People would say like, Chad Vingen, the guy with missing his left arm and his right index finger, sign, you know, and because you could go check that stuff. And so many of these documents are, uh, the way you identify people is with their disfigurements. It's, 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 it's crazy. Um, there's the threat of fire in the Roman world, especially in the urban center. It was always there. Disease, war, street violence, unsanitary conditions, you name it. It was a horribly anxious time to be alive for the vast majority of people. And in this story... Paul is in a prison cell awaiting a trial that could lead to his execution. In fact, not this imprisonment, but a later Roman imprisonment, that's exactly what would happen. I've actually been to Rome and I've seen the cell that supposedly held Paul before he was executed. It's eerie, it's interesting. In fact, the iron rings on the side of the stone are supposedly, they're dated that old. It's to touch that spot and say this could be, but even if it's not the actual place, like that Paul was in a hole like this and then brought out and and executed. So he's really thinking, this could be my fate. So what is this confidence then that he has? It's not that he knows for sure he's going to be released. His confidence is that whether he's released or whether he's executed, it will be for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what his confidence is in. If he lives, he gets to do more ministry, which is going to bring more glory to God and is going to help more and more people. If he dies, well, he's already got a great legacy. Uh, He's already been fruitful, and he gets to be with Jesus, the one person he loves more than anyone else in the whole world. And in a world where the great powers wield the weapon of death and incarceration and oppression, Jesus' great claim is that he disarmed those powers. That in Christ, death does not even have the final word. That there is a reckoning coming when Jesus returns, and he is going to make all things new and set injustices aright. That those who have died defeated in the world's eyes shoved under the carpet by the rich and the powerful. They're going to receive new life and new honor and new joy and purpose in a new creation. That's the promise. And that's what Paul's banking on. And that's why he can be so defiant in, in that situation. 
Don't mistake his trust in Jesus, his faith for his feelings. There are many times that Paul speaks about his discouragement and despair and uncertainty about the direction that his life is going to take. You gotta hear that, that faith and feelings are not the same thing, and it is okay to feel dark and down. That does not mean that you don't have faith. But the promise of the resurrection is what leads him on in hope, and he encourages the Philippians and us to remember that hope as well. So finally, based on access to God, given through prayer, the democratization of God's power to all human beings. And then based on the promise of the resurrection, Paul's life encourages, this is the third thing, to persevere, and to persevere here and now in the flesh, in our communities, in the world. I admit that Christianity has at times been warped and distorted into something that teaches us to look otherworldly, into a spiritual reality, the heavenly, almost forsaking the world around us, but you will not find talk like that in the scriptures, and you sure won't find talk of going to heaven when we die in the New Testament. Like, it's just, it's just, you really, it's not there. So an orthodox, a a, a centrally, biblically-based faith, Christianity, is earthy, and it's grounded and it's committed to caring for the world that we live in because it's God's world that he created and he called it good. And the promise is not that we will escape this when we die, but that we will be resurrected on the day in a new creation here, but remade, and that's awesome. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and he was talking about the resurrection, he said, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that that in the Lord your labor, your work, your vocation, it's not in vain. It's a promise. It's because of the promise of the resurrection that our work now is not wasted. It's because of the promise of the resurrection that nothing we do for love and for good and for true beauty and true community and true peacemaking, none of that will be lost. It all matters, and that means that you matter. Lord, help this encouragement of Paul's to encourage us, not just in our heads, but deepen our core. And Lord, I pray specifically for my sisters and brothers who right now might be struggling with their purpose or to see see that life matters, that they matter in this life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes and their hearts, that you would pour out vision and encouragement. Amen.